Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Are you okay? I do hope you are. Well, because the holiday, I know I keep going on about the holiday, but hey, because it was such a disaster, we've actually booked another one just for four nights. We're just going to swoop in like some sort of military operation, make the most of every single second and then dash out again. We're going to the place where we've been to so many times, we know it's going to be great. And so the the first question was, are we actually going to book this? And yeah, we all agreed, yes, we are. The second question was, you're not going to bring many books because we're not taking lots of luggage. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I'm really not. I'm just going to, I'll take one book. It's all I need. I'll take one book. I can't do it. I can't just take one book. What if I read it? I mean, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to have nothing to read. And I know we're making the most of every minute, but there are some times when they want to be on their phones, the kids. and I'm going to have to take more. How many can I get away with without them realising? I don't know. Anyway, I've got some brilliant books to talk to you about today. I'm really excited. Well, some are brilliant and one really didn't float my boat. But Never mind, you can't win them all. What are the books that we're talking about today? We are talking about Zero Days by Ruth Ware, and Ruth is coming on to talk to us about that book. Then we've got The Rule of Three by Sam Ripley, and Sam's coming on to talk to us about that book as well. Then we've got Drowning by T.J. Newman, The Book of Lost Names by Kristen Harmel, and Between Us by Mari McFarlane. So those are the books. We better get started straight away. And as I say, the first one is... Zero Days by Ruth Ware. Let me read you the blurb for this one. Are you ready? Hired by companies to break into buildings and hack security systems, Jack and her husband Gabe are the best penetration specialists in the business. But after a routine assignment goes horribly wrong, Jack arrives home to find her husband dead. To add to her horror, the police are closing in on their only suspect, her. On the run and out of options, Jack must decide who she can trust as she circles closer to the truth. This book is so good. I I mean, it's extraordinary. I really enjoyed it. It's my number one Ruth Ware book so far. I just thought it was great. But enough about me waffling on about how brilliant this book was, because it was. Let's go and talk to Ruth now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Ruth Ware, whose latest fantastic book is Zero Days. Ruth, welcome back to the podcast. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Ruth, I finished this book last night and I've always loved your books, but this is another level of awesomeness. I'm not just saying it. This book is brilliant and everyone need they need to listen to the interview but then they need to go out and acquire this book oh immediately that I is lovely say. my my longtime audiobook narrator Imogen Church who has narrated all of my books after she read this because she always reads the books prior to narrating them and after she read it she messaged me on Twitter and said Ruth I feel like you went to another <laughs> level with this <laughs> yes yes absolutely and I was like thank you I think <laughs> Did you have a stronger coffee or something? Something was going on. It's, it's uh, yeah, set the bar even higher. But anyway, let's start. If you could read us a little bit about this book. I would love to. So the section I'm going to read to you is from actually from a few pages in. My main character, Jack, she's come home. She's found her husband has been brutally murdered. And at first, the police are pretty sympathetic to her. They treat her like a grieving widow. They sort of, you know, very kind of gentle with her. But gradually she starts to realise that they only really have one suspect and that suspect is her. And the section that I'm going to read is from the point where Jack is starting to realise that perhaps the police are not entirely believing of her story. We're just trying to get as clear a picture as possible, DC Miles said. His voice should have been soothing. His tone was clearly meant to be sympathetic but for some reason all my hackles went up. But I've told you all this, I've already told you, this is like, it's Kafkaesque. My husband is dead and you're asking me about my phone battery? And you got home when? DS Malik asked, as if I hadn't spoken. Her voice was kind but brisker, as if she sensed that sympathy wasn't what I wanted. I think it was sometime around 4am? I remember looking at the clock on the dashboard as I turned into our road. I parked, then opened the front door, and I found... I shut my eyes, remembering the horror. The image of Gabe's mutilated throat rose up in front of my eyes, and I opened them again, feeling a jolt of that remembered terror and disbelief. Well, you saw... No footwear marks? No sign of a struggle? None! I shook my head. Any footprints you saw, that was me. There was nothing, no sign of anyone leaving. Just a smear of blood on the living room door handle. I do remember that because I saw it first and I knew something was wrong. And Gabe, how was he sitting when you found him? He was kind of slumped over his computer, I said. The numbness was stealing back over me and I felt myself beginning to shake again, not uncontrollably like before, more a strange, steady shivering, in spite of the warmth of the interview room and the hot mug of coffee clasped between my hands. Hadn't have been for the blood, I might have thought he was just asleep. He was... I swallowed, almost unable to think about it. He was still wearing his noise-cancelling headphones. I think whoever killed him... Whoever killed him, they must have come up from behind and... I stopped. I couldn't say it. Something in my throat seemed to close up and I just shook my head. And then you did what? DC Miles asked. I tried to lift him up. I thought... I don't know. I think I thought maybe he'd passed out. Hit his head or something. 
I'm not sure what I thought. I kind of pushed him back in his chair. He was really heavy, and at first I wasn't sure if I could move him, and then all of a sudden his weight shifted and he kind of flopped, and I saw... I saw his... I stopped. His neck. It was... I stopped again, breathing deeply through my nose, trying to hold it together. For a long moment, Malik and Miles said nothing, just watched me, trying to control myself. And then Malik pushed a box of tissues across the desk and said softly, I'm sorry, I know how hard this is. What a book, what a book. Now, we don't want to give any spoilers away, but you've told us a little bit about the very start of the book, but can you summarise it any more for us? Yes, so as the spoiler-free version is my main character, Jack, is a pen tester, which was a term I hadn't encountered until I stumbled over it while, well, I guess it was sort of on the tail end of researching two other books. I'd written two sort of tech-adjacent books, I guess, one by one, which has an app company at the heart of it, and The Turn of the Key, which is about a sort of nightmarish smart house. And in the course of researching both of those, particularly one by one, I ended up listening to a lot of tech podcasts, trying to kind of figure out what it was like to work in a startup, you know, the process of creating an app. And I carried on listening to those after lockdown, during lockdown mainly. And I just sort of got kind of darker and darker, I guess. I went sort of more and more towards the cybercrime end of the spectrum and started listening to all this stuff about, you know, hacking and cyber criminals and, you know, the dark web and stuff. And it was during the course of that that I stumbled across this class of people called pen testers. And I'd never heard the word before. And it's a slightly weird term and often throws people. It's nothing to do with pens. It's short for penetration testers, which in itself is a fairly weird term. And there is a, a reason why that doesn't appear on the jacket. But basically, it means someone who's hired to act like an attacker for security purposes. So if you have a really secure building or a really secure website or database, you don't actually know how secure it is until someone tries to break into it. And ideally, you don't want the first person who tries to do that to be a real criminal. So you can hire people to kind of use all the same tools as a real hacker in the case of digital pen testing or a real burglar in the case of physical pen testing, which is what Jack does. And then they report back to you and say, you know, this held up, this wasn't so good. Maybe your staff shouldn't have one, two, three password as their pass, you know, that kind of thing. So that is what Jack and her husband do for a living. Jack handles the physical side of the business and Gabe handles the digital. And she's out one night on a kind of fairly routine pen test unfortunately gets picked up by the police at the end of it and can't get hold of her, the person who hired her. So gets taken into the police station while it's all straightened out. And for some reason, Gabe isn't answering his phone, which is very uncharacteristic. But she gets home, it's three in the morning, opens the front door. And as you heard in the extract, she discovers her husband dead at his computer. His throat has been brutally slit. He's lying in a pool of his own blood. And Jack has to deal with the fact that not only has he been murdered, but as the kind of early stages of the novel progresses, she realises that the police's number one suspect is her. And at that point, she has to make a decision. She can either do the sensible thing, which is what I would do Mm -hmm. because I'm very law-abiding and logical. She can sit tight and hope that the police figure out their mistake, or she can take matters into her own hands and try to solve his death herself, which is what she does. 
but in the process she effectively goes on the run and puts a huge target on her back. And the pace of the book is wonderful. That It moves at a strong pace, but you're not left sort of breathless and exhausted. You're just totally committed to the story and, and rooting for Jack and all that she goes through. Was it a book that you wrote at a pace as well? It was a fairly quick book to write. Oddly enough, I think it actually took me longer than The It Girl, which is a much longer book and a much slower paced book. So it just goes to show that the process of writing something is not always the same as the process of reading it. I think that was partly because there was a ton of research to do for this, even though I'd already kind of inadvertently done quite a bit of research before writing the book because of all the sort of podcasts I'd listened to and interviews I'd read. Um, obviously, there was still a lot of practicalities to be worked out in terms of, you know, how would you go around breaking into a building? And, you know, what would you do to break into a secure insurance database and things like that? And also a big area, which I had no idea about when I started writing the book, was um, what it's actually like to be on the run. Um, like what mm. powers do the police have? What kind of processes would they follow to try and track down someone who they wanted to uh, urgently apprehend? And so, yeah, there was just there was a lot of research to be done along the way. There was a lot of sort of figuring out logistics um, but it was a hugely fun book to write. I had a I had a blast writing. <laughs> and it's got to be made into a film. Please tell me that you've already had it optioned. It has been optioned, in fact, yeah. for a TV series, which I think oh, it, I think it, it is very filmic in some ways. But because of the structure, so for anyone who hasn't read it, it's structured in a, a countdown to zero days, which is I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. Zero days is the point when the police catch up with Jack. So it starts off at minus eight days, which is when Gabe is murdered, and then it counts down from there. And so you know right from the beginning that Jack has a very limited amount of time in which to accomplish what she needs to do and that the police are closing in and there will be a crunch point. But because of that, it's sort of episodically divided into eight or I guess nine, depending on how you calculate it, sections right from the start. So I, I think for that reason, it's quite suited to TV. Yes, I can really see that, actually. And people not able to wait for the next episode to find out what happens. So if we hacked into your podcast listening, would we know what you're planning to write about next? Is that always a tell for, for you? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, so the book that I'm working on at the moment, no, completely not inspired by anything I've been listening to. But the book that's kind of percolating in the back of my mind, yes, but you would have to dig quite deep. I'm not sure that anyone just running their finger down the list of what I've been listening to would be able to identify the one thing that set a what if ticking in my mind. So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> At what point do you know a book is, or a story idea, is definitely oh, a book? Really good question. I don't know because I do have ideas that there's one that I would love to write and I've been thinking about it for a really long time, but it is missing an ingredient and I can tell that it's missing an ingredient. It's not, the idea isn't quite book-sized yet. I sort of have the beginning, I have some elements that I would love to include, but it just doesn't feel weighty enough at the moment to make 90,000 words which is about the minimum really for for the kind of thrillers I write so I'm sort of holding it in the back of my head I'm hoping that maybe that missing element will come out of the blue and I'll be able to write this book maybe it won't I don't know 
but mostly I would say I'm pretty good at kind of digging deep as I go along. So I don't need much to sort of know that a book is a goer from the start. I find out an awful lot along the way. So have you got various books on the go in different stages of development from just writing one line of an idea to adding these different components in your head I'm pretty monogamous in terms of my books so I always I I only ever work on one book at a time and I wouldn't start another book unless I had completely abandoned the one that I was working on which touch wood don't think has really happened to me since I started being published that I probably cursed myself (laughs) just because of the nature of publishing I do have to juggle projects so I'm very often talking about one book as I am now editing or writing another book and then sort of just trying to think ahead a little bit to the book that I will be writing after that because I don't know about other writers but for me the most terrifying part of the process is that point where I come to the end of a book and I have a book contracted but I don't know what I'm going to write yet which can be very scary (laughs) so it feels like you've mortgaged away a little bit of your future. So I I do sort of try to have a couple of ideas in hand, but I'm not one of those, you know, I'm always very jealous of writers who are like, oh, I have so many ideas, I couldn't possibly write all of them. (laughs) And I I don't really. I have two or three kind of viable ideas that are lined up for my next few books. And then I have a few more sort of just completely pie in the sky ideas, like things that I would love to write about but I know I'm not ready to, things that I would love to write about but would require such an enormous amount of research that it would probably be like a you know a five to ten year project or things that I would love to write about but are missing an element like the one I was just telling you about but those are really a handful of ideas, little glimmers rather than actual book kind of projects. In terms of the sort of the book size things that I'm working on it will just be those three, the one that I'm talking about, the one that I'm writing or editing and the one that's coming up next. Well, that's enough in itself. That's a a lot to be thinking about and remembering. When, I mean, again, we don't want to give any spoilers, but do any of the characters from Zero Days sort of stay in your mind at all? Do you ever think about them? Or are you quite, as you say, you're monogamous when when you're writing, so are you able to lock them in a cupboard in your mind? (laughs) I do think about all of my characters after I've finished writing them. And that I think that's one of the things about writing standalones is that unless you go the Taylor Jenkins Reid route of having sort of overlapping <laughs> universes where characters from one book will pop up in another, uh, which I haven't done so far. No, I don't think... I, I mean, they sort of they stay in my mind in the sense of sort of thinking about them and hoping they're okay. But... I don't, I can't imagine bringing on another character from another book to sort of have a walk-on part. I don't think Jack's going to be popping up as a pen tester in future novels. I think if I did go back to them, it would be to write another another chance of their story. But most of my novels don't really lend themselves to sequels. They're either quite tied up or the characters are the kind of people who wouldn't ever be involved in a criminal enterprise ever again. But there are one or two characters, Jack probably being one of them, who I could imagine having another adventure. Mm, and and I'd, be, I'd be here for it, definitely. Well, we come to the final question, which is the most crucial one on this podcast, Ruth. So please prepare yourself. No pressure. And the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of Zero Days? What was your biscuit of choice? Oh, this is such a great question. Honestly, I, I've 
I think this is probably always going to be my answer, which makes me feel very boring. I do love a chocolate digestive. They're just a classic. They're very good for dunking. I am a coffee addict, so anything that can be dunked. They require a certain amount of skill to be dunked because you have to get the timings just right or they disintegrate. But also I think they're the perfect combination between a biscuit that feels a little bit decadent because they do have a chocolate coating, but not too decadent. I don't, you know, I'm not one for these kind of studded with dried cranberries and white chocolate and sandwiched together with this, that and the other. I just, you know, a biscuit is fundamentally utilitarian object to get you through the day. And I think the digestive qualifies on that front. It does the job. It stands up and it performs and it does the job. Absolutely. Well, it's just great to hear more about Zero Days, which is a truly fantastic book. Highly, highly recommend. Ruth Ware, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So let's get straight on. Oh, I did that very loudly, didn't I? Right. Let's get on to the next book, The Rule of Three by Sam Ripley. Let me read you the blurb on this one. I didn't believe in the rule of three, not at first. It was just one of those urban myths you hear about all the time. A story my boyfriend told me about a girl cursed by the number three. 
I don't like urban myths and ghost stories. I don't get stoned and I seldom drink. So I'm not going to believe some weird story without seeing the evidence to back it up. As far as it was first told to me, there was some girl whose parents had killed themselves after her sibling had died in an accident, which means the girl was doomed to die too, because that's the rule of three. Bad things always happen in threes, they say. And they are right, because it's happening again. But this time, the curse is coming for me. And worst of all, it's coming for you too. <laughs> Very good. Let's go and talk to Sam now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast Sam Ripley, whose book is called The Rule of Three. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. Really excited to talk to you about this splendid book. Now, we normally start with the first sentence or first few sentences, but understandably, you said that you would prefer not to read it. So you've given me permission to read the first sentence. Is that right? Yes. Are you ready for me to completely decimate the book that you've put years of your life into? (laughs) (laughs) I think you'll do a better job than me. So I I trust you implicitly. Mm, Well, that's your first mistake, but never mind. We'll go with it. So I'm literally going to read the first sentence because I think it's a cracker. Okay. So chapter one, I wasn't always crazy, but I was never sane. Oh, that's such a good first sentence, Sam, honestly. Very good. You you read it beautifully. (laughs) He says in fear. Plus, it's a female narrator. It was really good. Fair enough. Well, can we start with you giving us a summary of this brilliant book? Okay, right. So as mentioned, it's called The Rule of Three. It is the main character comes to believe seemingly unrelated tragedies are actually connected. And if she can't work out why, then she'll be the next one to die. Yes, we always talk about rule of three, but this book takes it to a, yes, another level. What made you want to write it? And what made you want to write it now? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was, I mean, the idea was in my head a very, very long time ago. And I like the idea that having a thriller, a mystery where the main character is both detective and potential victim. So that was the initial sort of hook. As, as a way of playing with the genre, playing with the conventions of, of this kind of genre. That, that was the first idea that popped in my head. And then the title, the actual plot sort of came later. It was a kind of long period of just thinking and sort of tinkering away in my mind, in my imagination, until the very disparate parts of the story started to come together. And uh, at the time, I would uh, not always have the best reaction when I talk about the, the idea that I was put oh, no. off writing for quite a long time. <laughs> And yeah, so eventually it was ultimately, as I imagine a lot of writers, it was in COVID (laughs) in the pandemic when I decided to dust dust it off and write it in earnest. So how long was it from you getting the original idea to the book being finished then? How many? It's it's quite a few years. One more. I I would say that the very first outline that I wrote for the book was... It must be sort of 2015 kind of time. So it sort of existed for that amount of time. But obviously the the story changed quite a lot during that time. The characters changed a lot. And certainly it wasn't like a fully rounded plot, fully rounded idea. It was more of a snippet, shall we say. But yeah, so for, for a very long time. And the people that you talk to about the concept, initially dismissive, are you now ignoring their advice forevermore? Well, it's a, it's a funny one because I always say as a writer that getting the best quality feedback is, is the best advice 
anyone can give an aspiring writer because like friends and family will always try and be supportive. But at the same time, if you have an idea for a crime thriller mystery and they read romantic fiction, they're not going to be the best judge whether the idea sounds good or not. So it's that kind of thing. It's you want people who will be honest with you, but also people who would potentially read the book if they saw it on the shelf. So, I mean, I don't judge anyone too harshly. It's one of those things you have to kind of learn as you go along as a writer, the kind of feedback to pay attention to and the people to go to for that feedback. And it's not a book about sort of skipping through meadows. Yeah, it's it's a pretty dark, grim work. Obviously, lots of little light moments, but yeah, it is a it is a thriller. I think some people sort of think of it as sort of more horror. For me, it's it's a it's a mystery. But I think when it comes to sort of genre conventions, it crosses over to a few different niches. I mean, I wanted it to be kind of creepy and unsettling, paranoid. They they were the they were the what I was going for. Obviously, it deals with grief and death and a lot of dark subject matter, but. Yeah, you know, ultimately it's, you know, it's not, it's not meant to horrify, unsettle and unnerve. How did you manage the storyline? Did you, did it take a lot of plotting to put together or did it come quickly? Well, it always changes in the writing process. So I'd always had the, like the, the concept, the hook, the main character thinking something bad's going to happen and trying to stop it, trying to work out what it is, why it's happening and obviously stop it happening. But the actual plot itself, I mean, like I said, I wrote, you know, I wrote an outline, say 2015, and that was like a, like a bare bones. And then maybe going back, say, to 2018, 2019, I revisited the idea, expanded upon the plot, and that was when the sort of characters sort of came together. But during the writing, yeah, there was lo- lots, of, lots of edits, when I'm you know, talking to my agent, talking to read friends who, you know, who read it just just myself constantly thinking oh what if oh you know what if i change this and change that and a lot of the times the you know the characters are sort of driving the plots because whilst the story was roughed out in my head there's a lot of you know individual steps and nuances that weren't weren't and so yeah a, f- a few times characters led me down the wrong the wrong pathway and i had to sort of stop and go okay right this is this is not working out in this direction or the, the idea I thought was going to be good for this section is actually tediously boring and now I need to do something else. And then I, I find that all the best ideas come at the 11th hour and then there's like a retrofit process where it's all of a sudden something makes sense and you think, oh, of course, <laughs> it should be this rather than that. And so, yeah, I think the maybe the start, the opening, the opening sort of third of the book, that probably didn't change very much over time because at that point neither the protagonist nor the writer knew exactly what was going to happen or, or why things were happening so yeah the the rest of the book is yeah it was a it was a fluid process it was definitely fluid and i think that whilst i find editing and changing things it kind of like sucks the life out of the writing process a bit the first draft is where you feel the most creative and things are the most fun because you're mm. investigating and exploring and learning yourself and it's almost like you are a reader of the story because you don't know what's going to happen next but then when it comes to the editing process and collating feedback and making changes then it slowly sort of chips away at that creative and it becomes more of a problem solving and not a mathematical 
pursued, but it becomes less creative and more analytical and specific. So so which was the more painful, the plotting or the editing? By the sound of it, it's the editing that was... Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. So the, the plotting part is, is, is more fun because that's the... I'm almost like the main character being a detective and trying to work out what's happening and why it's happening and yeah so that's that's definitely that's definitely the, the most the most fun but then the editing is is the torturous part of the writing process but once it's over it becomes the most fulfilling because then you realize that things make sense and directed mistakes or continuities and if you kind of it's like a bulletproofing process where you had the idea in, in the first place and wrote it and liked it and then you then break it all down and chop and change during the edit and then it kind of feels a bit soul-destroying. But then at the end of that, the jigsaw has then come together and, and then hopefully it's all beautiful and lovely and you can then relax and then get scared before publication if people will like it or not. <laughs> so how many times do you think you'd read The Rule of Three before it actually went to I wouldn't even like to mentally calculate because it would just seem... It, yeah, it must be must be dozens by that point in time after after editing, after writing. Yeah, it must be dozens of times. And anything in the world where you have to go over again and again, it starts to it starts to eat away. But like I say, once that process is is over, and then you can look back and then feel proud and like you put the work in. It's all you can do at that. that at that stage so it's the rule of 30 rather than the rule of three <laughs> yeah oh yes yeah absolutely the rule of 30 and we should just talk about your name because it's written as we know by sam ripley which is you but it's actually a pseudonym can you tell us can you reveal anything for uh, yeah well it's because i've been a writer quite a long time but we have a lot of long-running series which is more in the thriller espionage sort of genre so it's completely different and therefore it wouldn't make sense to carry my sort of regular writer name as the rule of th on the rule of three because the book is so different from the rest of my books it would it would both surprise and shock any long-term reader who picked it up expecting another installment in a long-running series <laughs> and getting a completely different kind of thing and at the same time, I don't want people who necessarily wouldn't read my espionage novels to dismiss the rule of three, thinking, oh, okay, well, I don't want to read that kind of book. So that's what, that's the, the idea behind pseudonyms. I mean, I think they're kind of relatively common. And I think the most writers after a while want to write different things that they don't normally write. And I mean, for me, so, or, you know, I've, for every book I write, there's, there's 10 ideas that are competing to be heard as well. And like I say, so with COVID, it gave me the chance to branch out and, and try try this idea that had been rattling around my brain for many years. But of course, yes, like I say, it, it was fitting to have a different name, a different identity to go alongside a very different kind of book. And when you when it came to sign books, did you by mistake sign any with your real name? No, that's not that's not happened yet, luckily. But I, I didn't plan ahead and I kind of forgot that I'm a my handwriting is atrocious. I should have been a doctor. I mean, it's just so I, I realized very quickly it's, oh, I can't actually write any other way apart from this scribble, childlike nonsense. So, whilst I signed the book Sam Ripley, it looks exactly the same as my regular <laughs> signing. Um, so, yeah. Oh, 
that's fair enough. That works. We didn't think that one through. <laughs> well, we come to the final question, which is the crucial one on this podcast, Sam. So please prepare okay. yourself. And it is what biscuit was powering the writing of the rule of three? What was your biscuit of choice? It could only be a hobnob. I mean, it's the, as Peter Kay once said, it's the marine of biscuit. So, yeah. <laughs> It'll never, it'll never break away in your cup of tea and form a sludge. Of course, you need a larger mug to, to get them in to dunk properly, but yeah, only hobnobs. Where do you store them? Because one author I interviewed recently stores his in the freezer and that I tried it thinking it's not going to work and that is a game changer as far as I'm concerned. No one has ever said that to me before, so I am fascinated to, to, to learn more about hobnobs in the freezer. Yeah, you can literally eat them straight from the freezer. The taste, I think, is can it be improved? Well, it, I feel it is. It stays longer when you're dunking in your cup of tea. Yeah, it's a complete revelation as far as I'm concerned. I'm not sure if this is a wind-up or not, some kind of gotcha question at the, <laughs> at the end, but this is fascinating. His mother always kept her biscuits in the freezer, so this author had, had never come across a time when biscuits weren't kept in the and just thought that's what, what you did and it's only me asking about biscuits I, oh, well i've learned something. i've learned something today i'm gonna have to try that that sounds fascinating please do and report back well it's just been great to talk to you and to hear more about the rule of three sam ripley thank you so much thank you excellent so let's get on to the next book and what is the next book yes i'm going to talk to you about drowning by tj newman this is a book about an aeroplane faults on the aeroplane and the aeroplane in water that's a summary i will read the blurb in a bit but i had saved this book to read until i was back from the holidays thought this isn't a book i want to read before i fly and so i read this book and of course now i'm flying again and your girl's petrified. I need, to, in the nicest way, I need to try and forget this book before I fly. It's an incredible book. Let me read you the blurb. Six months after... Six months? No. Come along, Philippa. Six minutes after takeoff, flight 1421 crashes into the Pacific Ocean. During the evacuation, an engine explodes and the plane is flooded. Those still alive are forced to close the doors, but it's too late. The plane sinks to the bottom with 12 passengers trapped inside. More than 200 feet below the surface, engineer Will Kent and his 11-year-old daughter Shannon are waist deep in water and fighting for their lives. The only chance at survival is an elite rescue team on the surface, led by professional diver Chris Kent, Shannon's mother and Will's soon-to-be ex-wife, who must work together with Will to find a way to save their daughter and rescue the other passengers from the sealed aeroplane, which is now teetering on the edge of an undersea cliff. There is not much time. There is even less air. Oh, my goodness. So this is the second book by TJ Newman, who had written Falling, which I loved. And the trouble is, TJ Newman's been a flight attendant. So to write this with great deal of knowledge. It's an incredible book. I was sort of almost gasping. I was crying at one point. I was involved. I loved it. It's an incredible book. You have to read it. Don't read it on a flight would be my advice, but it's just got everything I wanted from a book. Honestly, loved it. And another book I loved, but very different, is the book of Lost Names by Kristen Harmel. This is one that I took on holiday. And let me read you the blurb. Oh, I didn't do the first sentence, did I? I didn't do the first sentence of drowning. Shame on me. <laughs> this, this is the first sentence. Will Kent, 
opened his eyes just in time to see the engine explode. I'm not going to read you any more of that. Just get it and read it. It's phenomenal. Anyway, we're on to the book of lost names. Here's the blurb. In 1942, Eva is forced to flee Paris after the arrest of her Jewish father. Finding refuge in a small mountain town, she begins forging identity documents for Jewish children, escaping to neutral Switzerland. But erasing people comes with a price. And along with Remy, a mysterious forger, Eva realises she must find a way to preserve the identities of those too young to remember. When Remy disappears and the resistance cell they work for is betrayed, the records they keep become even more crucial to remembering the truth. Decades later, the book is recovered, leaving researchers desperate to decipher its codes. Only Eva holds the answers. But will she have the strength to face old memories and help reunite those lost during the war? Let's do the first sentence of this book. Come on, Philippa, let's get to the first. There's a lot of pages before this first sentence. Chapter one, May 2005. It's a Saturday morning and I'm midway through my shift at the Winter Park Public Library when I see it. The book I last laid eyes on more than six decades ago. The book I believed had vanished forever. The book that meant everything to me. I really enjoyed it. It's an easy book to read. It was moving. It was engrossing. It was page turning. It's not high literature, but it's a great story. And I wasn't aware of all the sort of the forgers that happened during the war. I thought it was a great book. And I am definitely going to read more of Kristen Harmel's writing. I really recommend it. It was very powerful and moving, but as I said, easy to read because it just it just moved at a pace. And uh, yes, very good. Now the final book is Between Us by Mari McFarlane. And let me read you the blurb before I tell you what I thought. When Joe and Roising join their group of friends for a week away, it's a triple celebration. A birthday, an engagement and the launch of Joe's new crime drama on TV. But when she sees secrets she shared with Joe play out on the TV screen, she knows that between us means nothing at all. She starts searching for clues to the truth about her life, their history and the man she thought she loved and finds the most unexpected plot twist of them all. Among those same old friends, there's a surprising potential for new beginnings. Let's do first sentence. This is the prologue. 2003 Stockport Plaza Theatre. Withenshaw's number one psychic proclaimed a poster on an easel on stage. For tonight's show, a clairvoyant called Queenie Mook. The name was so peculiar, it couldn't be made up. Oh, is that Muck? Mook? Mook Mock? Mock? Mm. Anyway, that's the first sentence. Now, I picked up this book because I know I'm not really into these type of books, but I thought on holiday it could be interesting. And I love the idea of this drama on TV revealing secrets that the the screenwriter had been told in confidence. I thought that sounded interesting. This, why I didn't like the book is completely my fault. It is nothing to do with the book. If I've read that blurb and you think, oh, actually that sounds really good, do get it and read it. For me, it just made me realise that even when I'm on holiday, I don't want light stuff. I I want bodies. I want, uh, you know, bombings. I want murder. 
that's me. And so, as I say, it's completely my fault. It is nothing about the author or the writing. There was nothing wrong with it. It was completely on me. It just didn't work for me. But please go and read it. I'm sure everyone else in the whole world will love it. And I apologise. It's my fault. I shouldn't have picked it up. But there you go. You've got to try these things sometimes. You try them. It's like cottage cheese. You try it, you think, oh, that'll be a nice change. And then you realise, no, that's why I don't eat cottage cheese. It's not for me. You can put a prawn in it. You can put cheese in it. You can put salmon in. Sometimes they do or garlic. But no, it's still cottage cheese. Pineapple's another one. It's still cottage cheese. It's just fundamentally not for you. And, and that's where we are. So those are your books. Lord, I have waffled, but there we are. So what books have we had today? We have had Zero Days by Ruth Ware. Oh, my goodness. What a great book. Ruth, top book of your whole range of great books. And then I also interviewed Sam Ripley about The Rule of Three. What a great book. Then we had Drowning by TJ Newman. That is, wow, that blew my mind. And then also we had The Book of Lost Names by Kristin Harmer, which I loved. And finally, Between Us by Mari McFarlane, which I'm afraid was a, a cottage cheese book for me. But I'm sure you would love it. So those are your books. More Waffle, The End, I'm Going. Look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.